continuing the theme of the Reformation, uh, I'm going to be giving just one message on why the five points matter, and you can find the outline in your uh, bulletin. There are printed messages at all the exits or online as well, and all of the printed and um, uh, audio sermons from the last 25 years are on the church website. And we'll be looking at various scriptures, so I'm not going to read one at the start, but we'll be looking at a number of verses as we work through this. But right off the bat, you might wonder, well, why in the world would a pastor want to give a message on the five points? I mean, is he trying to be controversial or what? And I assure you, I am not trying to be controversial, but I, in my experience, I find that many people have misconceptions about the so-called five points of Calvinism, as they are called, as I'll explain in a moment, he didn't devise them. Um, And because they've been misrepresented, they're misunderstood, but they do represent some really important truths about salvation that the Reformation brought out, and so I would like to... um, go over those this morning and and talk to them about them with you. Understanding these five points is not essential for salvation, but I do believe that they are important for your spiritual life. Uh, If you understand these points, it will deepen your understanding of who God is. Uh, It will definitely deepen your understanding of what His grace means. Uh, you will grow to understand what you you are like as a sinner against God in a more deep way. And by the way, that's always the way to understand God's grace is you get a higher view of God and a lower view of yourself. And then you realize, whoa, the mighty gulf that God did span is bigger than I ever thought. And that makes you appreciate what he did for you at the cross. Uh, you will understand what the new birth is in a deeper way. You'll have more assurance of salvation. And contrary to what is often thought, understanding these truths will prompt you to evangelism. You will want to share the good news with others more as you understand these things properly. There have been many giants of the faith down through the ages who have um, understood and proclaimed what are called the doctrines of grace. Uh, Of course, the Reformers themselves, but then most of the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, George Mueller, Martin Lloyd-Jones, many, many others that I could name who have proclaimed these things. And the fact that these great men of God themselves have held to these truths should make you, if you don't believe them, say, hmm, maybe I'm missing something here. I need to go back and re-examine what the Bible says. Now, the view that opposes uh, Calvinism, as it's called, I don't like that name, but we'll use it here for the sake of this message, is called Arminianism, and it's named after a man named Jacob Arminius, Spurgeon humorously pointed out in his autobiography that by nature we're all born Arminians. And he said God has to open our eyes to the truth in order to reveal these doctrines of grace to us. And so it's a process usually, and I'm understanding today we're all in process. And maybe this stuff is totally new to you, and you just think, no way. That's one end. Maybe you've arrived at these truths years ago, and that's good. Uh, this won't be a new message for you, but most people are somewhere in the process. And um, so my aim today is just wherever you're at in the process to help bump you along a little bit, or I hope motivate you to go back to Scripture, uh, read some works on these things, and begin to deepen your understanding of the gospel. Uh, Spurgeon calls these truths the essence of the Bible, 
He says they are the gospel and nothing else. And so it is very, very important truth. In my own experience, I came to understand four of the five points long before I ever read any uh, writings by Calvin or any of the other reformers. I had never read a page of Spurgeon. Uh, nobody. Uh, at that point in my Christian life, I was a college student, and I would read through my Bible, and I kept coming back again and again to Romans 9. And it just was a, a stumbling block to me. It was a passage that I thought, ah, you know, and, and I got frustrated, and I kept fighting with Paul, I thought, especially over verse 16, where Paul says, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And I thought, no, it depends on my will. You know, I have to will to believe in Jesus. Paul says, no, it doesn't. And I would fight with Paul. And I'd go around and around the merry-go-round. And then one night as I was going through this in my mind, I don't hear voices from God, so don't misunderstand, but it was as if God tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're not fighting with Paul. I inspired Paul to write that. You're fighting with me. And I kind of went, gulp. <laughs> if I'm going to be a Christian, I guess I got to believe Romans 9.16 and all these other verses. And uh, I just submitted to God's word and said, all right, God. Uh, and uh, came to understand four of the five points. Now, I didn't come to understand the fifth point. It's the middle of what I'll share in a second, so-called limited atonement, until actually uh, the mid-90s. I was already a pastor here, and I was reading John Owen's book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, and uh, that's what brought me over the line. I'll share more about that when we get to the third point here in a moment. Now, as I said, Calvin himself did not delineate these points. Um, Calvin died in 1564. He was only 55 years old. And um, so about 45, 50 years after Calvin was dead, uh, Jacob Arminius and his followers disagreed with some of the main teachings of the Reformers. And so the Arminians, as they were called after Jacob Arminius, came up with five points that they disagreed with the Reformers on. And at the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619, the uh, Reformers came back with a rebuttal. And that's what has come down to us called the five points of Calvinism. But as I said, Calvin was long in his grave before these got articulated. They are often remembered by an acronym, uh, maybe because they came out of Holland, uh, called TULIP. And that stands for T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, the perseverance of the saints. Now, as John Piper points out in his little book on this, and others have pointed this out, those um, labels really don't express carefully the truth involved. Uh, and there could be much better descriptions of them, which I'll mention as we work through them. But uh, because... Um, they're an easy way to remember the points I'm going to use them here. Now, you still may be thinking, all right, but why bring up something so, so controversial? I mean, you know, isn't it just going to create uh, problems? Well, first of all, you can't avoid controversial doctrine if you want to get into the Bible. There's all kinds of controversial things in the Bible and the question is not, is it controversial? The question is, is it biblical? If it's in the Bible, then I, I need to hold to it. The Trinity is controversial, and so you've got a whole wing that professes to be Christian but are not, Jehovah's Witnesses, that deny the Trinity. Well, I'm sorry it's controversial, but it's biblical. And so we have to um, 
hold to it. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 6 taught uh, the, the doctrines I'm going to share with you. And as a result, he lost a number of disciples. They said, this is hard stuff. We can't bear this. And they left. And Jesus didn't say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's soften it a little. Let's talk. He just said, well, there's other hard things too. And let them go. So we have to be faithful to God's word. But um, many, many books have been written on this. So this is just a surface uh, treatment this morning. And uh, I want to share with you why they matter. And to sum it up, the five points of Calvinism matter because they help you glorify God. That's the key issue. And the reason they help you glorify God is that you'll better understand his great salvation. J.I. Packer, in his introduction to the death of death by Owen, says there's really only one point of Calvinism. And it is that God saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all. That's it. God saves sinners. Sinners don't help out in the process. And the point is this. If you can share at all and say, yep, I was responsible partly, then you'll share the glory. If God does it all, If all things are from him and all things are to him, then as Paul says, all you can say is to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so that's really the key point, that salvation is totally of the Lord. So let's look briefly at these five points. First of all is total depravity. And that means this. By nature, all people are born in sin, enslaved to sin, hostile toward God, unwilling and unable to repent and believe in Christ. Now, again, total depravity makes people wrongly think, oh, that means everybody's as bad as they possibly could be. Uh, No, that is not the teaching. If that were the case, the world would have self-destructed eons ago. Uh, There is something called common grace, and because of that, many unbelievers are very nice people, uh, thankfully. Uh, They are not mean, they are not nasty, they are sometimes nicer than Christians are, sad to say. But that's not total depravity. Total depravity refers to the impact of sin on every aspect of our being. Uh, Our intellect, our emotions, and our will are sinful by nature. And because of Adam and Eve's fall into sin... Every person who has been born since then, except for Jesus, have been born sinners, alienated from God. And as sinners, that means that no one is willing or able to come to Christ apart from God intervening in their life. The will of sinners is free according to their nature. In other words, sinners can do whatever sinful nature prompts them to do, So they have free will in that sense, but it is not free to choose Jesus Christ and to follow him apart from the new birth. And it's interesting that even an Arminian by the name of Charles Wesley understood that in his great hymn that we sang last week. He wrote that we were fast bound in sin and nature's night. Picture that. We were enslaved to sin. That's what fast bound means. Uh, We were spiritually blind in nature's night. And furthermore, we are spiritually dead. And um, those are all biblical metaphors that picture the total inability of sinners to come to Christ. Now let me share with you some verses that very clearly uh, say this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By you, he's talking, you Gentiles, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, that is, we Jews, 
all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So it was our inherited nature to be dead in our sins and to live according to our lusts that were opposed to God. Then later in Ephesians 4.17, Paul asserts that unbelievers, he says, are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God. Uh, They are, he says... uh, They are excluded because of the ignorance that is in them, and that's because of the hardness of their heart. And so being dead in sins, darkened in understanding, hard of heart are all different metaphors that picture uh, the inability spiritually of the natural man to come to Christ. And in 1 Corinthians um, 2.14 Paul explains that the natural man, the unbeliever, he says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And then he explains why. For their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And that word cannot is a word of inability. They don't have the ability to understand them. And then he repeats in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, where he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Uh, In whose case, the God of this world, he means Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So blind people are about as able to see who Christ is so they can believe in him as if you took a blind person to the Grand Canyon and said, come on, you got to see this, you know, just open your eyes. Well, I'm sorry, they don't have the ability. They are blind. They cannot see and no amount of willing will help them to see. They need a miracle to see. And that's what Paul is saying is true of unbelievers. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul is describing again those who are outside of Christ. And he says, the mind set on the flesh, that's a way of describing unbelievers, is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So again, he is asserting there, the inability of fallen sinners to please God. Now, saving faith is pleasing to God, but Paul says they cannot please God. They're not even able to do so. And so the point is, unless God graciously intervenes and and grants that to a person, saving faith, no sinner is able to believe in Christ. Jesus taught the same thing. He said to Nicodemus that all of his religious efforts... And his religious stuff, he was a Pharisee, would not get him into God's kingdom, that he needed a new birth. Now, have you ever seen a baby will to be born? You know, I think I'll pick April 1st. No, I wouldn't have picked April 1st, but that was the day that I made my entrance into the world. And my mother cried. She didn't pick April 1st either. Uh, but no baby wills to be born. Uh, we are conceived apart from our own will uh, when our father and mother are joined together, and uh, so a sinner can't will to be born again. Uh, then in John chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus said to the Jews who were challenging them, him, why don't you understand what I'm saying? And then he explains why. It's because you cannot hear my word. That cannot, again, is a word of inability. They could not do it. And why not? Well, he goes on and says, the reason is you're of your father, the devil. So they needed a new birth from God to be born again from the father on high rather than their birth uh, of the devil. They were the devil's children. And you go through the Gospels and many of Jesus' miracles... I think, are pictures 
of what happens spiritually when God causes a person to be born again. You have the lame who walk. They're unable to walk until Jesus speaks the word and they're healed. You have him opening the ears of the deaf and opening the eyes of the blind and, of course, raising the dead. And all of those are pictures of spiritual uh, inability, helplessness, and God intervenes, and as a result of his mighty power, they are raised up. Now, Arminians come back to this argument with what they call prevenient grace. And prevenient grace is the idea that God has given to all people the ability to believe in Jesus. Um, Otherwise, their argument is, it's absurd to call on people to believe in Jesus if they can't. You know, that just is logically absurd. And that sounds logical, but the problem is it's not biblical. Because as we've seen, the Bible all through proclaims that men who don't know Christ are dead. And yet the gospel is proclaimed to them and they are uh, exhorted to believe, to repent and believe. And when God accompanies that message with his power, they do. But um, beyond that, too, there are just simply no verses that really support the idea of prevenient grace. So that first point is foundational. And I've got to tell you this now. If you go along with the first point, all the other four follow. (laughs) Okay? So that's a foundational point to everything that follows. The second point, U of the tulip, stands for unconditional election. And what that means is that by his grace alone, apart from any foreseen faith, before the foundation of the world, God chose to save many, but not all, for his glory. Now, the misunderstanding here commonly is this. Well, if God chose everybody to be saved before the foundation of the world, then we're just robots. We don't have any free will. Uh, That term free will is kind of a misnomer. Nobody has free will. You don't have free will. You didn't pick when you would be born, to whom you would be born, that you would be born in a wonderful country like the United States rather than Afghanistan. Uh, You didn't pick the gender that you wanted to be born. Uh, You didn't pick your DNA. I mean, so many things. We didn't pick to be born sinners. That was God's decree from Adam that all of his descendants would be born in sin. And you can shake your fist at God and say that's not fair, but God ordained that and that's the way it is. And we have to submit to that. And so, as I said, sinners are free to act in accordance with their nature. I mean, they may even choose to go to church. They may choose to be good people or bad people. They, they have all kinds of choices, and so do we. So that's not what the free will issue is all about. The issue is, are they free to choose Jesus as Savior and Lord when they are fast bound in sin in nature's night, as Charles Wesley put it? And they are slaves to sin. And Jesus said in John 3, they love their sin. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so unless God intervenes to open their blind eyes, to show them the glory of Christ, to show them how sinful they are so that they uh, are convicted by the Holy Spirit, the fact is no one could, no one would come to set Christ for salvation. So God has to take the initiative. Thankfully, Scripture is clear that he did that before even the foundation of the world. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Notice, according to the kind intention of 
Whose will? Of his will. His will. It was God's will that brought us to faith. Another great passage in Romans chapter nine or 8, I should say, verses 29 and 30. Paul said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Arminians, of course, pounce quickly on the word foreknew. And they say, well, you see, God predestined all that he knew in advance would choose Jesus of their own free will. Well, I can't deal with that at length here. I have a sermon on Romans 8.29 where I do. But just two problems that I'll bring out here. First of all, the theology behind the Arminian position there is robbing God of his sovereignty and giving God's eternal plan over to sinful men to according to their choice. In other words, it would be as if rather than God planning salvation for his glory and God giving a people to Jesus for his namesake and his glory, God rather just looked down on the parade of human history and <clears throat> he saw which direction the parade was going and he ran and got in front of the parade and said, see, I designed the parade. Uh, that's not what happened. I mean, read the story of the conversion of Paul. Did God say, wow, I am so relieved as he looked down on history that Paul would choose me because that guy's going to be useful in my, in my purpose. Not exactly. If you read Paul, he talks about how God had mercy on him even from his mother's womb. And uh, God struck Paul to the ground on the Damascus Road and basically said, get up, go into town, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. There wasn't a whole lot of free will in that whole experience. So God intervenes to save. So the theology of that, it robs God of sovereignty and says he didn't plan salvation for his glory. It's just kind of the way it worked out, and he's relieved when he gets a few that choose him. Uh, It's too bad when the others don't, but it's not the biblical picture of God. And then a second reason, just to reject that view of foreknowledge, is the biblical usage of the word. When God is the subject of foreknow in the Bible, uh, it always means to choose or ordain beforehand. It has the sense of um, knowing beforehand to enter into a relationship with someone, choosing to enter that relationship beforehand with someone. Now, God foreknows everyone and he foreknows everything. He is omniscient. But in foreknowledge, it means God picked that person in order to enter a relationship with him. Uh, In an article on foreknowledge in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, uh, scholar Jeffrey Bromley says, What God knows, he does not know merely as information. He is no mere spectator. What he foreknows, he ordains. He wills it. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians 1.11, he says that we were predestined, again, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So Paul is saying God planned it, God does it. Now, some object, of course, here and say, well, then if God didn't choose everyone for salvation, he doesn't love everyone. And uh, the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish. So how do you work through that? Well, again, I can't go into that in depth here. If you're interested, John Piper has a very helpful paper on his website called Are There Two Wills in God? And you can read that, and he deals with that problem. But let me just give one example. Even Arminians agree 
God chose Israel in the Old Testament. I don't know any Bible-believing Christian who would say, no, he didn't. It's very clear. God chose Israel. Now think about it. That means he didn't choose some of my ancestors who were Cherokee Indians. And some of my other ancestors were Norwegian. And he didn't choose them. And he didn't choose the Africans. And he didn't choose the Australians or the South American Indians. By choosing Israel, God narrowed the field down to one people living in one place over in the land of Palestine. And even if you go since the time of Christ, the very nature of the Great Commission, God could have said, all right, angels, go out to every people and proclaim the good news, and it would have been done first generation. Here we are 20 20 centuries later, and there are still people groups that have yet to hear the good news. People live and die without hearing about Christ. We're trying to fix that by sending out workers to every people. But what I'm getting at is simply that um, God didn't pick everyone. He permitted the nations to go their own way. And we don't know why. Now, does that mean you say, well, did God predestine some to go to hell? You have to be very careful here in saying this. God predestined who would be saved, and he passed over the rest. And that means that if a person is saved, it's because God mercifully chose him to be saved. If a person is lost, it's because of his own sin. And that's what the Bible teaches. And God will be a perfectly fair and just judge of every person according to the light they've been given. No one's going to get an unfair shake at the judgment. So, Total depravity, unconditional election. The third one, and this is the hard pill to swallow for a lot of us, is called limited atonement. And that means that Christ's death paid the penalty of sin to secure salvation for all whom the Father had given to him. And as I explained a moment ago, that's the last point that I came to understand. And you need to understand that it does not mean that we have to limit the offer of the gospel to the elect because we don't know who the elect are. Uh, That's not the meaning of so-called limited atonement. Now, many have pointed out everybody on both sides limits the atonement in some way. The uh, Arminian limits the effectiveness of Christ's death. In other words, it means Christ didn't actually die to save anyone He only died to make salvation possible for for whoever will respond. Uh, The Calvinist limits the atonement as being only for the elect, but it says this, it is absolutely effective for them. In other words, he will not lose any for whom he died. He will save them. So limited atonement could better be labeled particular redemption. Um... And the real issue at stake is this. What was the purpose of Christ's death? Did he die to make salvation possible for all but effectual for none? Or did he die to make salvation effectual for all whom the Father gave him? Did he die, as Matthew one twenty one says, to save his people from their sins? Um, or did he die as the unlimited camp would say, so that someday there will be people in hell who, for whom Christ died, but his death had no effect on them. Uh, or did he give himself, did Christ love the church and give himself for her, as Ephesians 5.25 says. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, there's an interesting picture of the redeemed in heaven, and they're singing this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
It doesn't say he purchased all people everywhere, but rather he purchased some from all people everywhere. So it seems there to indicate that his death bought some, but not all. Now, as I said, it was reading John Owen in his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and I will say this, if you're going to read it, unless you're into theology, you might want to get the modern English condensed version. John Owen, even J.I. Packer, uh, who wrote the introduction, admits Owen does not write in a crisp, clear, modern diction of English. Uh, he uses, I think, what Owen, uh, what Packer calls lumberized Latin. Um, so he's not easy to read. But Owen argues that Christ didn't just aim for our salvation when he died. He actually secured our salvation and paid the debt so that when we stand before God, the debt is paid. And Owen presents three options. There are three options. He says either God imposed his wrath on Christ and Christ paid the penalty for all the sins of all people in which case all people will be saved because they'll get to heaven and say, Christ paid my debt. I'm in. And we all, I hope, agree, not everyone will be saved. The Bible's pretty clear on that. Second option is, then Christ died to pay for some of the sins of all people, and the sin that is accepted is unbelief. In other words, that's the only sin that will keep you out is your unbelief in Christ. And Owen asks a couple of questions. He said, all right, where does the Bible teach that? And it doesn't. And his second question is even more difficult. Then how does that sin get atoned for? If Christ didn't atone for it, how does it get atoned for? And that leaves a third option. And the third option is Christ died to pay the penalty for all the sins of some people, namely the elect whom the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. And so practically what that means is when Christ died, it wasn't just a blanket plan for whoever may choose to believe him, but rather he died for you specifically if you know Christ, if you've trusted him. His death was for you. Picture this. It would be like he went into the orphanage of sin and he picked you out and he said, I know it's expensive, but I'm paying for that one. That's mine. And so you can have the assurance that you belong to him and that increases your love for him because you see his great love for you. Or the slave market of sin would be a similar analogy that there we were on the slave block And we were doomed to be enslaved for life to a cruel master. And Jesus came and interposed his blood and redeemed us from that. So first point, you were helplessly, hopelessly lost in sin. Second, that means that God graciously had to choose you before the foundation of the world, which he did. And thirdly, Christ had to die for all your sin, which he did. And that leads to the fourth one irresistible grace and that means that through the working of his spirit God infallibly draws to himself uh, all whom he has chosen to save and probably that term could better be called effectual calling it does not mean that people get dragged kicking and screaming against their will to Jesus and that's how it's often pictured And the Bible is very clear that there are some sinners who resist the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that people can't resist the gospel. Rather, it means this, that the Holy Spirit effectually makes those he chooses willing to come and believe in Jesus. And Jesus taught this very plainly in John 6.37. In John 6.37, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now you notice he did not say I hope that all that the Father has given me will decide to believe in me but it's up to their own free will. 
he makes it very definite. All whom the Father has given me, that's a specific number, that's the elect, will, in fact, come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day, he goes on to say. Um, in John 6.44, he explained it further. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You notice that three of the five points, at least, are in that one verse. There's total depravity. No one can come to me. Uh, there is irresistible grace. The Father draws him. And there's the perseverance of the saints that we'll look at in a moment. I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, some of his disciples stumbled over all of that, along with his saying, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so at the end of the chapter, they turn away and they said, this is hard stuff. We can't handle it. And Jesus didn't soften it, but rather he repeated in John 6.65. And he said, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. So it is God's doing that we come to Christ. And so if the Father grants it and he draws that person, Jesus says, he will come. I'm not going to lose a single one that the Father gave me. Now you say, well, does that mean that people have no choice in the matter? No. I, I can sing with good conscience the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. We sang it a couple of weeks ago. And that's a fine song as long as you understand this. Why did you decide to follow Jesus? It wasn't your pick. You decided to follow Jesus because, as that hymn goes, uh, he, he show, shined a quickening ray into your dungeon where you were blind and in chains. The chains fell off. You rose, went forth, and followed him. In other words, it was God's working in your heart to open your blind eyes, to show you the glory of Christ in the gospel. And you said, Jesus is worth it all. And you sell everything you have to buy that field where the treasure of Jesus is. That parable that he tells in Matthew 13, where a guy discovers a treasure in a field. He goes off for joy, sells everything he has and goes back and buys that, that field. So, there's where the will is involved. Yes, you come willingly to Christ. Nobody comes to Christ unwillingly. Everybody comes with joyful, willing spirit to say, I found him. God opened my eyes. God showed me how glorious and beautiful Jesus is. Thank God. It was all of God, but then we choose. So, uh, God... Uh, doesn't fail in his purpose. And that's what that's all about. He effectually calls to Christ all whom he has given to him. And that leads to the last point, And that's called the perseverance of the saints. And it means this, that all whom God has chosen for salvation and saved by his grace will persevere unto eternal life. Now some teach that if a person prays the sinner's prayer or he goes forward at an altar call and he professes faith in Christ, immediately you're supposed to share assurance of salvation with him and tell him, hey man, you made that decision, you're in forever. And there may be no subsequent evidence of saving faith. There may be no repentance. He may go right back to his ungodly lifestyle, but he's saved because he made that decision. I am here to tell you that is false. That is absolutely false. Genuine saving faith inevitably results in a life of godliness. And if there's no change of heart, there was no new birth. It's, it's that simple. And so the perseverance of the saints means, as Jesus promised, that he wouldn't lose any whom the Father gave him, and that's his part. He's going to keep us. But it also means on our part that we're going to persevere in faith and obedience. And that's the evidence that we're truly saved. You know, I've had many, many dear Christian parents who have said something to me like this. You know, I know my child is going to heaven because when he was 10 years old, he went to camp or VBS or somewhere, Sunday school, 
and he made a decision and he invited Jesus into his heart. Now he's into drugs, he's into immorality, he uh, doesn't have any time for God, he doesn't even care about God or the things of God, but boy, he's saved, I know that, and he's going to come back to, to faith. Well, the question you need to ask is this, is there evidence that God changed his heart? And that's the, evidence, that's the question I ask people who come to me and they're unsure of their salvation. Do you have any evidence God changed your heart? You used to hate God, now you love God. You used to love sin, now you hate sin. Uh, yeah, there's a process of growth, of course. But is there repentance? Is there ongoing repentance and faith and struggle against sin, desire to obey God? If there's not, Let's go back to square one. Have you ever been born again? Because when you're born again, God changes your heart. Now, I know some believers backslide for a time. But here's the deal. If you know Christ and if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, you cannot be happy indefinitely in your sin. You just can't. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sins, saying you need to repent. You need to get out of this picture in and come back to Jesus. And you know that. And there is this terrific fight going on. There's no fight. If somebody's in sin who used to say he was a Christian and he's going, hey, this is cool. I got everything I want. You know, I got all the sex I want, all the money I want. Uh, Life is great. I go, "Uh, there's a problem. I don't see any evidence of the life of God in your soul. And, and John, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, writes this. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. That's the new birth. And he cannot sin. He means he cannot go on sinning because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So perseverance in faith and obedience is the mark, the evidence that a person is one of God's elect. Now I know this message probably raised more questions than it answered, and uh, I'd be very open if some of you want, just let me know, and I could schedule a midweek question and answer time or something where I could deal with all the questions, but I assure you there are solid biblical answers. I've been exploring them for the last uh, 50 years. Scary. Next year I'll be out of college for 50 years. I don't know how that happened, but um, my concern is this. The Arminian view, which is very prevalent in American evangelicalism, inevitably brings God down. It has a truncated view of God. It lifts the sinner up. It has an inflated view of man and his ability. And as a result, it diminishes the grace of God and the wonder of salvation. Uh, It's based on human logic. It's not in submission, though, to the word of God. And historically, and you can read about this in church history books, Arminianism has often led to theological liberalism and Unitarianism in church history. In fact, there's a a current teaching that is the direct child of Arminianism. It's called open theism. And uh, one of the men who promoted it, he's now dead, Clark Pinnock, He saw that if God foreknows everything, God foreordains everything, and he didn't want to go there. So he concluded, God doesn't know everything. God doesn't know the future until it happens. He can take an educated guess. But do you see how destructive that is to the doctrine of God? That's pretty scary. I mean, what about the book of Revelation? Doesn't that show us that God's going to win? And that he knows the future, that he ordains the future, even the man of sin. He predicts he's going to be raised up and uh, he's going to dominate the world. That's all God uh, knowing and ordaining the future for his glory. 
So I think Arminianism is weak and it is dangerous. Understanding the truths I've outlined here today help you understand, first of all, how sinful you were when God saved you. You never would have come to Christ on your own. It shows you that God's love for you uh, was based on his grace before the foundation of the world. It shows you that Christ died to save you, not just a blanket plan, but he intervened his blood for you. And it shows you that uh, he's going to keep you until the day of salvation, the day of his return. And all of that leads you to say with Paul there at the end of Romans 11, you know, glory to him forever and ever because from him and through him and to him is the the glory. All things are from him. And so it gives you hope. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, if God began the work in you, he's not going to abandon you. He's going to finish that good work. And it encourages you to evangelize because you know that God has people, you don't know who they are, but he chose them. And when you share the gospel with them, as many as are appointed to eternal life will believe. And that's Acts 13, 48. So wherever you're at on the spectrum, I hope this message encourages you to say, I need to go deeper. I need to do some study. I need to explore these things further. Let me give you just three books you could start with besides your Bible. John Piper has a very short introductory book called Five Points, and that's a good place to start. It's probably not more than 100 pages and easy to follow. Uh, the late James Boyce and Philip Ryken, who is now the president of, West, uh, of uh, Wheaton College, wrote a book called The Doctrines of Grace, and that's good, and written on a lay level. And then three men, David Steele, Curtis Thomas, and Lance Quinn, uh, wrote The Five Points of Calvinism. Those are all good books. But the bottom line, if you walk away with nothing else, is this. These five points matter because they help you glorify God for his great salvation and in a greater way than you ever could have without understanding them. So that's my prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, these are hard things for us to understand and grasp. I pray that we all would be subject to your word of truth, that we would not negate any part of it. You've said that whosoever will may come, and we rejoice in that. But we know that no one would will to come unless you chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so I pray that we would uh, glorify you more and more for the fact that unless you had chosen us, we would be lost in our sin right this very minute and that we would give all the glory, all the praise to you for your abundant and amazing grace in Jesus' name. Amen.